Today, we continue our trek through 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, and Paul makes a shift to the second coming of Jesus Christ and shows that there's hope for those who have died as well as those who will remain alive when Jesus comes. And so we read in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. I heard a story of a man who was walking by his home in his own neighborhood when one day he passed death. And this ghoulish figure, death, as he met the man, looked surprised. But they passed each other without saying a word. This shook the man so much that he went to a wise friend and he said, I've just seen death. What does it mean? The wise friend said, I think tomorrow morning he will call upon you to take you. The man said, what do I have to do to escape? The wise friend said, I think that you should get in your car and drive fast and furious to a distant city, drive all night, go as fast as you can, and so elude death. The man did that. In fact, he made record time to this city, got out of his car, breathed a sigh of relief that he had eluded death. Just then, death tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around. The man was shocked. And death said, I have come for you. The man said, but I thought I saw you yesterday by my home. Exactly, said death. That is why I look so surprised at you, for I were told to meet you today in this city. <laughs> Death is inevitable. The book of Ecclesiastes, as has been popularized by that 60s song by Roger McGuinn, in chapter 3 says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. Ironically, we often teach so much about Christian living and not much about Christian dying. Death is something we all face. Therefore, Paul thought that it was very important for these young believers, in their confusion, to understand about death and what happens after death. It's certainly a topic we must all face, for the Bible says it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this, the judgment. You have an appointment with death. It's one appointment you're going to keep. You might be late to every other appointment in life, but you'll keep this appointment. That's one thing you'll be on time for. It's appointed unto man to die once. When John Wayne was 71 years old, Barbara Walters went out and interviewed him in Newport Beach. And uh, he said before his death that it's hard for him, it was hard for him to look back and see his old movies. Uh, it was hard because he saw how young he was. In fact, in the interview he said, it's kind of irritating to see that I was a good-looking 40-year-old and suddenly I look over and see this 71-year-old. Pilgrim? No, he didn't say that. I just threw that in. <laughs> then he said, I'm not squawking. I just want to be around for a long time. I'm not squawking. I just want to be around a long time. Truth is, you don't know how long you're going to be around. 
You have some appointment at some time that God knows that you will keep. The passage that we have read, verses 13 to 15, is a scripture that I often refer to at funerals because of the hope that is inside these verses. In fact, the one distinguishing mark between a Christian funeral and a non-Christian funeral is hope. I am able to do many funerals in the position that I am in, and some are pleasant to do. Some are not so pleasant. You say, pleasant? Yeah, there's a few pleasant funerals I've done. I've buried old people who have walked with the Lord for a long time, and they got very old, and their body was keeping them in a place where uh, life was a drain, and it wasn't as enjoyable anymore, and they graduated to heaven. Other funerals are not so pleasant. The death of a child is a very difficult, difficult funeral to do. The death of an unbeliever is the most difficult funeral to do because there is no hope for the person who died rejecting Jesus Christ. As I conduct funerals and I look at the audience, it is so visibly apparent who tracks with you and who doesn't. Some will nod. Some will even smile because of the hope in the midst of the pain. Others are absolutely bewildered. They don't have a clue as to any purpose at all for this that happened. Now, Paul has a purpose in writing this section. He makes a transition in verse 13, and he continues that transition through a lot of the rest of the book into chapter 5. He's writing this to comfort the brokenhearted Thessalonian Christians who had lost some of their loved ones to death. Some have died, and those who are alive are very concerned. Because while Paul was in Thessalonica, he taught about Jesus coming again, the return of Jesus, the rapture of the church, as we'll discuss next week. Paul said, Jesus is coming soon. Well, these young Christians thought he meant like real soon, like a week or two, or next month. But months have passed. No Jesus. Some of their relatives have died, and the young Thessalonians are thinking, what's going to happen to those of my friends and relatives who have died? When Jesus comes for those who are alive, will those who have died be left out? Is there no hope? There is much confusion when somebody dies. Even so much questioning goes on. We ask, why did this happen? That's usually the first question. Lord, are you punishing me? Is that why I've lost my spouse or my child or my father or my friend? And one of the most nagging questions is, will this ever happen to me again? I don't know if I'll ever be able to take this if it could happen again. Some of those questions are very tough to answer. Some are impossible to answer. There are other questions that we can answer with great certainty, however, and offer great comfort. And in this passage, we're going to see four aspects about death, the first being the appearance of death. Notice in verses 13, 14, and 15, Paul uses the word sleep or asleep. That is the appearance of death. When you look at somebody who has died, it looks as though they're sleeping. That's what the text means. In fact, if you have a, a Bible, the, if you look in the margin of some of your Bibles, it will say, next to sleep, dead or death, those who have died in Christ. The idea here is the body 
not the soul. See, some people read this text of Scripture and make the wrong interpretation that Paul is speaking about soul sleep, that when you die, your soul kind of goes into oblivion. You don't feel anything, you don't experience anything, and you just hang out or veg out until the resurrection day. But that's not the truth. He's not talking about the soul, but he's speaking here of the body. In fact, the word koimao in Greek is a common Greek euphemism for the sleep of death, the appearance of the body. When we were in India, one of the things I noticed again, it was my fourth time to that country, and it was a stark reminder of how close people live to death. Uh, they don't keep it hush or surround it with beautiful music and not discuss it at home. It is a common part of life. Uh, we noticed that some people even bury their relatives in their backyard next to their house. And on the streets there are casket makers. And you can just drive by and kind of look at one that might match you and one that you would like. We were going through one town and we noticed this procession. It looked as though they were carrying this woman on a bed or a mat to her house. But she was dead and they were taking her to be buried. And she looked as if she was sleeping. It's the appearance of the body. That's what Jesus had in mind. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus was sick and died, Jesus said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Well, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. In the book of Acts, when Stephen was being persecuted and stoned for his testimony, it said when he had finished his message, he fell asleep. That's the Christian word for he died. Sleep is also a good picture of death because it speaks of rest after a long, hard labor. In the Old Testament, when kings, prophets, patriarchs died, it says, and they slept with their fathers. But Christians use the term sleep for death because death is temporary, like a nap. Even if you fall asleep and you wake up, if you die physically, there will be a resurrection. So it is appropriate to call death sleep. And a graveyard, a cemetery, koimeterion is the Greek word, a sleeping place, because the body rests until the resurrection. Daniel 12 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's interesting that children often fight sleep. They don't like naps. They see it as punishment. We've said, Nathan, it's time for a nap. What did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. You need to sleep. You'll wake up. Don't worry. When we get older... A nap looks like a reward. <laughs> oh, I get to take a nap. You see, the point is this. A, a Christian doesn't have to fear death any more than you have to fear taking a nap. You will wake up. As Daniel said, some to everlasting contempt and shame and some to everlasting life. So it's referring here to the body, not the soul. In fact, Jesus spoke about the feeling that we have and the ability to experience things after death. Would you turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke, 
chapter 16. A very uh, poignant portrait is drawn of life after death as Jesus tells the story of two people, the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now listen to the language as we go on. It shows that after death, you are conscious. You can feel pain. You can experience emotion. It says in verse 23, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. This man is so alarmed that he wants to get a message back to his brothers to beware of how they live this life, lest they come to this place in death. Notice, he doesn't say, Oh, this is an awesome place I'm at. I can't wait for my brothers and friends to come here. We're going to party, man. As some glibly say, as they speak about life after death and even going to hell today. He says, send somebody to remind them not to come to this place. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, the scriptures, the writings. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. So we see there's a place of torture and their experience after death. The appearance of death is sleep. Back in our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we now see the ignorance of death. Notice what he says, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant without knowledge, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. There's a, a lot of speculation and ignorance about death. It always has been and there still is to this day, even though... In many colleges, there are now courses in the curricula that have been developed called thanatology or the study of death. Even we, though we study it and we study it, there's still these unsolved mysteries about what happens after death. I was reading a report um, from the New England Journal of Medicine 
an interesting report that has sort of befuddled doctors and scientists that says in a recent report in California, we've observed that left-handed people die nine years quicker than right-handed people. Now, it's not a joke. There's no punchline to that. That's what the article said. You could have a lot of fun with that one, and of course, I'm sure that you'll rib now your left-handed friends that I've told you that. Scientists said, we don't know why. We don't know what pattern there is. It's just something we've observed across the board. People have tried to unravel the mystery of death for centuries. Spiritists, philosophers. And in the ancient times, especially during the Greek and Roman times, lots of ignorance prevailed as to what happens after a person dies. The reason there was ignorance is because the belief system of the Greeks and the Romans was such that ignorance would prevail. For instance, the Greeks believed in gods and goddesses, and that everything, every experience had a god or a goddess. Thanatos was the Greek god of death, hence the term thanatology, the study of death. Thanatos, the brother of Hesiod, who was the Greek god of sleep. And death, Thanatos, was pictured as an elegant priest dressed in sable garments, so as to take away the fear of death from the Greeks, to take the edge off of death, the dread that many people had. The Greeks taught that when a person dies, it was a liberation. That as long as you're in this body, the soul is a prisoner. And so a goal in life is to set the soul free from the prison house of the body. But the Romans pictured death as dark, as ghoulish. The Romans had a picture of death in black robes with black wings, a pale face, haggard looking. The northern peoples of this time, in their mythology, pictured death as a grim reaper with a sickle in his hand and his right hand raised to kill people. And that's where we get some of these images that prevail today. Because of these belief systems and ways of thought, these young Christians were bewildered at death. They were ignorant. They were without knowledge. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. You are Christians. You don't have to live in ignorance. You can have assurance for the future. Um, I have found that uh, there's still a lot of talk today about what happens after death. In fact, life after death books, movies, and experiences are at an all-time high. Uh, you've all heard about people who have supposedly died in the emergency room, and as they died before they came uh, back to life, they saw this bright light, warm feeling of peace, and they came back to tell their friends, it's okay. You can die. You're going to die, and it's okay. You can live any way you want. It's nice on the other side. Now, I don't doubt that people have these experiences. I think they're telling the truth. But do you think, from the Christian perspective, these people are deceived? That Satan, who's called the angel of light, or who dresses up as an angel of light, can come and deceive people, giving them a false hope, so that when they have these experiences and write books about them, people who are without Christ can say, I can do anything I want, because there's hope for everybody. What is usually not told is the flip side of the coin. I've told you about Dr. Morris Rowlings, the cardiologist, who in the emergency room for years studied life after death experiences, and he said, uh, they're not telling you the full scoop. In fact, in a recent book, he said, the turning point in my own concepts occurred when a patient experienced cardiac arrest and dropped dead right in my office. Of course, that alone didn't change my thinking, 
But the fact that this 48-year-old postman was screaming, I'm in hell, keep me out of hell, each time he responded to resuscitation efforts did cause me some concern. Boy, I guess. <laughs> in fact, his first book that he wrote called Beyond Death's Door, Dr. Rawlings says, I believe, after seeing my patients and their experiences, that there is a hell as well as a heaven, and many people are going there, and we must do everything to stay out of there. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul solved the problem. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. Don't you love that? We don't need speculation. We have revelation. Divine revelation. The word of the Lord gives you assurance for the future. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, Brethren, we know that if this body, this house, this earthly tent is dissolved, we have a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is something we know. And the term he used was, we have absolute certainty. And so we have that revelation. You know, it's, it's amazing that so many people will listen to the words of people who supposedly died and have returned to tell us what it's about in some of these books, and yet reject the words of Jesus Christ who died and rose again from the dead, who really did conquer death. And his resurrection is a historical fact. There's much ignorance. Now, in verses 13 and 14, we see also the response of death. As summed up in the word sorrow, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Or, I'm telling you this so that when you grieve, when somebody dies, your grief will not be like the grief of the world, who has a hopeless grief. That when you sorrow, when you grieve, it will be mingled with hope. He's not saying Christians don't grieve. He's not saying at death, you just slap your arm around somebody and say, Hey, praise the Lord. Man, he's in heaven. Don't cry. Hey, that's great. If he's walked with the Lord for years and he's died, he's in heaven. That's great for him. But not for those who remain. When you lose somebody, there is a tremendous ripping a shock, a coping that must take place called grief. And there is such a thing as good grief. You can't just push it down. You have to release it. It's a good and a healthy thing. In fact, uh, experts tell us that there are several stages of suffering and coping to bring us to that place of acceptance. When you first hear that somebody you love has died, the first normal reaction is denial. You say, I don't believe it. It couldn't have happened. This couldn't be happening to me. No. And then after the shock settles in a while, the next feeling is guilt. If only I would have been there. Then often comes anger and blame. It's that doctor. I knew we should have selected that other doctor. Followed by a time of great depression where everything looks black. You don't think there's going to be any hope, any light, until finally you enter into an acceptance phase and hope. Everybody experiences that when somebody dies. Grieving is a necessity. Ecclesiastes, which says there's a time to be born and a time to die, also says there's a time to laugh and there is a time to cry. 
When the Hebrews buried their dead, they grieved for a month. When the Egyptians buried their dead, they grieved for 70 days. It was a long period of time. Jacob, when he thought that Joseph was torn by wild beasts, the scripture says he mourned many days. When David lost his son Absalom, David didn't say, oh, praise the Lord. He said, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, Absalom, my son. Oh, that I would have died instead of you. He was torn by grief, and the whole nation of Israel saw that David was sorrowful in their midst. They would often put sackcloth on their bodies at a time of a burial. They would rip it publicly. They would beat their breasts, and they would wail out loud. I have friends who have come from the Middle East to this country, and they say, we notice how strange Americans behave when somebody dies, as if it's illegal to let out emotion. He says, in our country, we give full vent to our emotions. We want to have grief and deal with it and, and go through that process at that time so that we don't have to deal with it for a lifetime. I think that in our culture, especially when it comes to men, we tell them things like, uh, well, <clears throat> you know, uh, son, emotions are good for women. But big boys don't cry. And uh, little Johnny falls and hits his toe or his knee, and parent cuddles him and says, Oh, hey, it's all right. Big boys don't cry. By the time he's 12, he thinks the tears and masculinity don't mix. That's a tragedy. You still have lacrimal glands to shed tears. They don't close up after you're a youth. And they're meant for a purpose. Jesus refuted that whole thing about big boys don't cry. The shortest verse in the Bible says Jesus wept. And when he wept at Lazarus' funeral, the people said, my, how Jesus loved Lazarus. I think he refuted that big boys don't cry theory at that moment. There's going to be emotions, strong emotions. Be ready for them and be available for them. But Christian grief is different. It is different. There's a difference between hopeless grief and hopeful grief. We grieve, we sorrow, but it's still mingled with hope. And so he says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The word is elpida in Greek. It means a joyful anticipation, a confident expectation. Though I'm sorrowful, I know, I know that there's hope for this person who has died. They're in the presence of the Lord. That hope makes all the difference. When Martin Luther, leader of the Great Reformation, as you know, had a 14-year-old daughter who was close to death named Magdalena, he said it was the lowest point in his life. He was in grief beyond words. And he looked at the limp body of his daughter lying on the bed, and he said, Oh, Lord, you can touch her, Lord. You could heal her. Restore her back to me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he turned to his daughter and he said, Magdalena, do you want to stay with your daddy or would you rather go home to be with your father in heaven? She said, oh, Papa, as the Lord wills. That night, he held her as she died and passed into heaven. And as she died, Martin Luther said to his daughter, Oh, my dear Magdalena, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sun. How strange to be so sorrowful and yet to know that all is at peace 
and that all is well. Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Finally, in verses 14 and 15, we have the assurance in death. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul makes it clear that when a believer dies, his soul goes to be with God. It's not soul sleep. You don't veg out in unconscious reality until the resurrection. You are with the Lord. Because it says those who are dead or asleep, God will bring with him. For God to bring you with him if you die before he raptures the church, you've got to get there. And so they're with the Lord. That's why Paul says to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, is to be present with the Lord. The soul or the spirit goes on immediately to be with Jesus Christ. There was a pastor who knew that his friend had lost his wife to death, and he put his arms around his friend, and he says, I'm so sorry, I heard that you lost your wife. The man said, well, no, I, I really didn't lose her. You can't lose something when you know where it is. He was in deep sorrow, but he knew that his wife was in Jesus' arms, and he had assurance. True, the body remains on this earth. It decays in the grave. It corrupts. It goes back to the elements. You're dust, and unto dust you shall return. But though the body remains here, the real person is with the Lord. You are not your body. Your body is a part of you. But the real you is something outside of the shell that is your body. I think that's good news, especially as we grow older. We get more wrinkles. We lose our hair. We get a little more weight. We don't look the same. It's good to know that we're not going to have this body forever that the real you will have a different body, a different house, an eternal home one day. We're going to get rid of this tent, and we're going to be with the Lord forever. That is dramatically evident if you look at a corpse. It looks like the person, every bit the same person, but that spark of life, that vibrant personality that made that person that person isn't there. It's just a shell because that person has gone. So, though we say he died, we would be more accurate if we say he moved. He was promoted. And in the Christian sense, he was beamed aboard Starship Heaven. But he hasn't died. He's very, very much alive. When Stephen died, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then it says he fell asleep. That's why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross who was repentant, one was on the right hand, one was on the left hand, one was mocking Jesus, the other said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus didn't say, well, I've got to tell you, your soul is going to sleep for a few thousand years till I come again, but don't worry. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now that thief died and was buried in a tomb, and his body corrupted and decayed into the dust. But his spirit was with the Lord. When you think of what's ahead... What's waiting for you who are Christians? More and more, the things of this earth grow strangely dim. Now, I'm not saying that you should have a death wish. I hear people say, oh, life is so hard, I just want to die. Now, I can't relate to that. I love life. I live life with a passion, with zest. 
I love everything about this present life. Well, no, not everything. There's a lot of things I don't like. But I really enjoy my life. I like living here. I want to live the most that I can for the Lord while I'm alive. But one day, man, it's going to be a lot better than this. No taxes. <laughs> no contact lenses. No back pain every now and then. No jet lag. Just forever with the Lord in awesome perfection. And it will last. So Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Sir Walter Scott said, is death the final sleep? No, it's the final awakening. It's when you really wake up forever. How do we know this? Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Actually, if, if we believe. That word if is a huge word. It's the hinge of the hope. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, if you believe that, you'll have hope. If you don't, you won't have hope. If you believe that, he died on the cross, secured your salvation, triumphed over death at the resurrection, well, then you have hope. And the dead will be raised incorruptible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor of a church in Philadelphia many years ago. He's now in heaven, very much alive, having a blast. When he was on this earth and he was pastoring, he lost his first wife to death. After the funeral, he was driving his children home in their car. Everyone was overcome, especially the children, as you can imagine, in the grief of losing their mother. Dr. Barnhouse was looking for an apropos illustration to drive the truth and some kind of a comfort home to his kids. He came to a stoplight, and a moving van passed in front of them, and a huge shadow of the truck was cast over the car. And it came to him. He said, kids, if you had a choice, would you rather be run over by a truck or the shadow of a truck? He said, well, Daddy, of course, the shadow of a truck can't hurt you. He said, exactly. And did you know, kids, that 2,000 years ago, the truck of death ran over Jesus Christ so that now only its shadow can touch you? And it began to open up their hearts and minds to the reality of the assurance and hope that a Christian has. Conclusion, then. Death is inevitable. As someone said, the statistics of death are very impressive. One out of one person dies. You can lift weights. You can take vitamins. You can nip and tuck with plastic surgery all you want. You are going to kick the bucket. That's the bottom line. That's truth. Now, you may add more years to your life and have better health and enjoy it more than if you let your body go, but you have an appointment with death that you're going to keep. It's appointed unto every man once to die. The ancient philosopher Diogenes, the Greek philosopher, was standing in front of a huge pile of bones, studying them, not saying a word. Alexander the Great was standing off to his side, watching what was going on, and he finally came close and he says, Diogenes, what are you about? What are you doing? Diogenes, without giving him eye contact, said, I am searching earnestly for the bones of your father, but I cannot seem to distinguish between them and the bones of the slaves. In other words, Alexander, at death, everybody's equal. 
You might, some people have huge, tall gravestones. Other people have little, meager gravestones. But underneath, they're all at the same level. The rich, the poor, the ignorant, and the educated all are equal at death. And so we must be prepared. In very practical ways, you can be prepared at home. Talk about it. Don't say, we don't discuss that in our house. Discuss it in your house. Let them ask questions. Talk about the reality of it so they can be a little bit more prepared. Forgive one another. Resolve conflict. That's a practical way you can be prepared. Otherwise, after death, you will live through a lifetime of guilt. How about a will and insurance? Practical things. Ah, oh, don't worry about that. God will take care of it. Yeah, but God gave you a brain. Use it. Prepare for death. Most important, prepare spiritually. Prepare spiritually. If your life is not right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are yet unprepared. Some of you grew up praying, if I should die before I wake. Now, if that becomes a reality and you die before you wake, where will you awake? Will it be a dream or a nightmare? Will it be like the rich man or like Lazarus? David said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. There's an appointment for you. If the Lord doesn't come back first, be prepared. 